Hey, thanks for listening to On The Job. This particular episode contains some audio of a confronting medical situation that might be uncomfortable and distressing for some. So just a bit of a warning. It's something that you might want to avoid. All right, on with the show. On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here and it's Hello Sally. Hello mate. Yes, this is Sally Rugg. I'm joining you all the way from Tasmania. I hope people enjoyed last week's episode all about Tasmania because I certainly did. And really exciting news. Jess and I have made contact and we are going to have a beer. Are <laughs> <laughs> You made a friend in Tasmania. And we want photographic proof too to make sure that you're drinking the right beer because we're very concerned that you don't get that wrong down there. I don't know if the photographic proof is going to carry via the podcast, but I'll do my best. <laughs> well, it's great to have you back uh, here to, to have a chat. There's been so much going on. And in a moment, we're going to catch up with Lech Blaine, good friend of the pod, who uh, is a, a, a thinker, academic writer, activist, whatever you want to call him. He wrote a fantastic quarterly essay at the back end of last year called Top Blokes on Scott Morrison and the, the nature of, uh, of you know the working class cloak that he's put on to try to win elections. I wonder how that's tracking at the moment moment in the electorate as we get close to the election. So I wanted to talk to Lek about that and a few other things. So we'll do that. But we do have to talk about some stuff that's been happening, Sally. And one of the things that happened last week was a nurses' strike in New South Wales, which uh, you know brought to a head just how much pressure uh, our people in uh, our healthcare sector have been under for the last two years. They're basically a breaking point. Yeah, the footage and the the pictures coming out of that strike um, were so powerful. And it reminded me, I mean, I'm going to do a little bit of nerd activist slash organising theory again, but it sort of reminded me how the purpose of a general strike, right, is not to inconvenience people or to, you know, make a point about the utility of a worker, although, you know, that second point is also useful. In principle, the purpose of a strike is to demonstrate in the street the sheer number of people who could take further action, right? Like a strike is actually sort of like, you know, historically has been like this visible warning (laughs) of like, look at us all, today we're in the street, this could escalate type thing. And I, I think that's really, really important to remember with every strike, but also particularly when it comes to strikes. Uh, involving nurses because knowing a few nurses personally myself having been cared for by nurses here and there across my life like I think everything I know about nurses is that these are the last people on the planet who would walk away from their responsibilities at work like it it does not come lightly for a nurse to go on strike. And I think that's another reason why it was just so powerful to see the sheer numbers of people take to the streets as a real warning of like, you know, ignore us at your peril. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's at play in that dynamic is that governments and private operators as well have been able to leverage the compassion and commitment and the professional uh, integrity of nurses and their Hippocratic Oath and, and all the things, their commitment to what they do and the welfare of their patients to ensure that they stay on the job regardless of how punishing or unfair or exploitative conditions are because they will not leave their station. So for nurses to actually 
make the decision that in their own interests and in the interest of the patients as well, because it wasn't just about pay, it was also about uh, nurse-to-patient ratio so that the quality of care that was being delivered in our hospitals, this was New South Wales, but this particular circumstance is being played out all across the country, that that particular nurse-to-patient ratio is maintained. It takes the pressure off the workforce and it ensures quality of care. Now, I just want to play you a little bit of audio from a brilliant, brilliant program that was made by Radio National's background briefing. It went to air Sunday two weeks back, and it is about the nursing situation in Sydney hospitals across the Christmas New Year period. It's a first-hand account or a range of first-hand accounts from nurses of what was happening to them in a day-to-day moment-to-moment experience as the Omicron surge peaked. And it gives you a little bit of an insight of the pressure and the demands that are on these workers and have been for the last two years. So with thanks to Radio National and Background Briefing, have a listen to this particular scenario. This is Boxing Day. This is just at the start of the wave when it's really starting to peak. And the the hospital in question is overflowing in the emergency department as the nurses try to triage and work out who they need to treat really quickly, what's going on and, and what sort of capacity they have, knowing that there's a lot more coming down the pipeline. And this one individual story, will give you a sense of, of just how dramatic, demanding and emotionally confronting being a nurse in the New South Wales health system right now actually is. Have a listen. I had a mum literally just scream her car into the ambulance bay immediately. That always picks up my attention. If someone's rushing, I'm thinking to myself, oh God, what's in the car? That's a senior nurse from the emergency department. We'll call her Amelia. She wound down her window and she was screaming, my daughter, she can't breathe, help her, she can't breathe. And I ran and opened up the car door and click clacked her little girl out. And she was spluttering and she was crying, this little five-year-old girl. And she just kept on looking at me saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. At this stage, Amelia has her mask and goggles on, but she's not in full PPE. And I just pulled her out of the back seat thinking... Why can't this child breathe? You know, raking her over with my eyes, thinking, okay, her mouth's not puffy, that's good. She doesn't have a rash, that's good. She's a little blue around the lips, okay, that's bad. She's sucking in at her neck, that's bad. Amelia holds the girl tight against her chest and starts to run. I had my hand on her back so that I could count and feel how fast that she was breathing. And I put my ear down just onto the top of her shoulder so that I could hear if she'd had a wheeze without using a stethoscope to see is this asthma, is this an upper airway, is this a lower airway. As Amelia makes the 10-second run from the ambulance bay to the resuscitation bay, the kid's mum frees herself from her seatbelt, gets out of the car and starts running after them. Back behind us, she started shouting, I've got COVID, I've got COVID, I think she's got COVID and that's why she can't breathe. And my heart just sank and I thought to myself, oh my God, what have I done? There it is. That's a grab from a a gripping, compelling program, How COVID Chokes a Hospital from Radio National's Background Briefing. You can search the podcast on the ABC Listen app or listen to the program online. But uh, Sally, it is just one example of what nurses are having to deal with moment to moment at this particular time and why they're at breaking point and asking for it all to change for more support and for better pay. Oh, that is such a harrowing, upsetting story. I just really feel for everybody in that story there. 
And of course, what happens next in that story, the girl and her mother will hopefully go into the hospital and get further care and that nurse will have to spend the next 14 days at home or depending on uh, how long the isolation period is at that point in time. And so, you know, the next time someone rocks up to hospital in a car in an ambulance going, help me, help me, my daughter can't breathe. There's one less person like the nurse in the story to be there and, and scoop that child up. Um, yeah, really, really horrible stuff there. So there's just a bit of an insight into what's been happening with uh, the nurses' strike. We'll keep you up to date with all of that. Thank you to Radio National Background Briefing for that particular grab. And, uh, yes, once again, uh, as much as we love our nurses, and we do, and our health professionals in the allied sector, gratitude isn't enough. Love doesn't pay the bills. They need the support both financially and professionally and with secure jobs uh, that their unions are fighting for in order for them to take care of us when we need it. Uh, and uh, they do such a brilliant job. All right, on with the program. Let's catch up with Lick Lane. On the job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Sally and Francis with you and good friend of the podcast, author of the uh, quarterly essay, Top Bloke, Lech Blaine is joining us as well. And uh, I'm just wondering how he's going now that he's uh, got the keys to the city and he's free to roam around in this sort of like weirdly not quite post-COVID world. Lech, how are you going? Good, thanks, mate. Great to be here. Uh, yeah, I've been um, trying to get a – I actually got had COVID um, just after I turned 30 and. Uh, the end of January and, and got COVID that weekend, so I'm um, yeah very well acquainted with the uh, pandemic at the moment. Um, but I'm I'm pretty good. I, I recovered pretty quickly, so yeah, not feeling too bad. Oh, that's lucky. Well, let's do it. I mean, we're, we're approaching an election, and uh, obviously the big question is going to be. And following on from the essay that you wrote last year, and we can refer people back to it, a quarterly essay, Top Blokes, you talk about the pitch to Working Australia and how Working Australia has changed and also how its connection to politics has changed. I guess I'm interested in how you see at this particular point what's going on in beyond the political beltway, which we kind of all hover in, because it feels to me, this is my premise, like, and I wonder how you feel about this and Sally as well, that... We've had two years of significant change in Australia and most of it, in fact, all of it has been rather traumatic, disruptive and frightening. And that despite everything that's happened with the current government, the idea for most ordinary Australians who are battling to make a living day to day that more change is what is required is quite confronting and quite frightening. And so that therefore, you know, as much as uh, people in uh, the progressive side of politics like ourselves are working for and campaigning for a change of government and one that will be better for workers, for more secure jobs, for unions, that that change is not going to come easy because people wanting more change at a time when change has been really tough on them is a massive ask. Oh, definitely. I I think um, where the critique of Albanese's small target strategy. Like, I, I think that you need a small target generally to win an election from opposition. But if you were ever going to use a small target, um, it's during coronavirus. Like, I, I think that even with uh, the polls that we've seen recently, which sort of show that, especially the news poll, that, that Labor's fairly strongly ahead at the moment, I think that once you get into the campaign mode, I think that people are going to be very reluctant. No matter what their visceral feelings are about Scott Morrison personally, I think they're going to be very reluctant to change the government. So, that's like a thing to really um, remember and a thing that you get really disengaged with if you're keyed into Twitter uh, because you get this perception that, um, especially if you're paying attention to what's happening in Parliament at the moment, you sort of get the perception that, um, which is sort of true, <laughs> that the government is like an absolute mess uh, and it's never been more of a mess even though it's got a pretty glittering history of being a mess. 
uh, since getting elected in t- 2013. But I don't think a whole lot of that's going to translate to the minds of the like. It, it was really telling, and I know that they would have filmed most of them in December. It was really telling the, the four corners that they did. Mm, I loved that those two episodes. Just to interrupt you, there's like a sort of process of talking to people who are swing voters via a focus group, and then there was what what like 20 maybe 20 swing voters from various backgrounds um, and they cut up essentially conversations from a focus group type interview with them and sort of spliced them together, the first episode on Scott Morrison and the second on Anthony Albanese. As I said, it was recorded in December, so the polls have, have blown out a little bit since then and um, Morrison hasn't had a great summer. But um, I think it was like a pretty valuable, like people were blowing up about it on Twitter about um, – how these sw- the swing voters who aren't particularly politically engaged, a lot of them, how um, un-anti Scott Morrison they were, when the reality is that undecided voters aren't going to be if they if they were anti Scott Morrison they wouldn't be undecided voters. Like <laughs> this is a like this is where ele- elections are won and lost. It's not won and lost in a system with compulsory voting. It's not won and won and lost like making your most passionate supporters more passionate. It's it is actually uh, won and lost with quite politically disengaged voters. So. It's, I don't think that Morrison is – I think that he's definitely lost skin within um, even, like, people who don't pay that much attention to politics, but I don't think that he's quite as, as hated as um, what people sort of get the perception of from yeah, recent events. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's like a um, – as you get closer to the campaign, like they're talking about getting rid of him, but I, I just I, – I don't see how that would done. I, I think that Labor's done everything possible to put themselves into a position to win, uh, so I think they've done like a, a, a they've been really disciplined, but I, I still think that as I said, it's, it's going to be really difficult to uh, to get the swings in the in enough seats in the right areas to, to actually win the election. Yeah, and I think you've made a really salient point that when you said you know elections are won largely on you know those swing voters, and that Labor has got itself into the winning circle by appealing to hopefully those swing voters. And the the assumption that underpins that strategy is that Labor voters or uh, people who put Labor as their second or third preference voters, they're going to do that. Like even if they're pissed off at Labor for voting for the religious discrimination bill, I don't know, something. (laughs) Or, you know, like even if they wish that uh, Anthony Albanese was more outspoken or visionary or stood up for whatever it might be, the the assumption is from, you know, Labor HQ that Labor voters, when it comes to voting day, will cast their vote for Labor. And, like, as frustrating as it is for someone like me who, you know, I would love the Anthony Albanese to stand up and sort of give a sort of visionary vision for the country, you know, I sort of reluctantly get it. (laughs) The hope has to be, right, that when there's three weeks or four weeks until the election, that then is the moment when we start hearing a little bit more about the plans. I think the really disciplined thing about not responding um, very much throughout the pandemic was that I think those disengaged sort of voters would have been absolutely pissed off if they saw an opposition leader being too divisive during such an emergency. So I, I think it was pretty necessary to, to stay out of the fray a bit um, and, and not not just on the wedge sort of stuff, like just in the, in the normal run of things. But what that does is that as we reach this like apex of the electoral cycle, like they've gradually given Scott 
Morrison enough rope to hang himself. And so when they now are like starting to really, I think, strengthen their rhetoric and, and um, really attack him and, and keep their foot on his throat, they're not seen as, as having spent the you know the last three years crying wolf or, or, or sort of just being an opposition for the sake of opposition. Like you now there are these, these really like stuff like aged care to, to come out with, with such unambiguous language and, and really go to the throat of the coalition, I, I think that patience really pays off in, in this sort of period as we get to, like, the really pointy end of it. So, like, you're a, um, well, you know, I would describe you as a masculinity expert based on your quarterly essay work, um, but also because I sort of just straight up don't properly get, mas- like, I don't get it. It's I'm the least qualified. Um, but I, I wondered what you thought of Scott Morrison's puff piece on 60 Minutes recently when Carl Stefanovic gave him this sort of like, you know, free kick after free kick to talk about how great he was and they sort of wheeled out Jenny Morrison, his wife, to apologise for all his missteps. Um, but at the end of the episode, he whipped out the ukulele and I just wondered, like, because um, for me, I didn't think that that was a, like, super blokey thing to do, but, I, like, I just wanted to get your advice on that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those, like, it's a marketing person's idea of masculinity, I guess, or, like, <laughs> um, masculinity in the suburbs. Like, it was, yeah, it was very bizarre. Um, and and clearly, like, he, he put quite a bit of thought into what he was, doing and I think that um, you know as much as it will shit people I think that there was some sense to what he was doing and I think that um, Jenny Morrison as much as people hate him using her as camouflage for so many things in his family and that sort of stuff she is extremely likable to the sort of you know suburban Australians like she doesn't seem to like in the political games and she doesn't seem ideological she does just sort of seem really normal and like that might be off to like here but um, yeah I think that it, it is, you know, you've got the two strategies, which is one of them's the Morrison doing the goofy sort of daggy dad thing and then like washing the woman's hair and doing these sort of things, which he knows everyone's going to get pissed off about and kick up, kick up a song and dance about. And he actually wants that and he thrives on that. And because he, like he said it the other day, he said, oh, you know, which is so bizarre that he would use the ukulele as this sort of like linchpin figure of like middle Australia. But he said something along the lines of when you, you know, um, disparage me playing the ukulele, you're disparaging, you know, normal Australians, <laughs> which is quite, uh, it takes quite a bit of footsteps to like uh, try and make that argument. But that's what he's trying to do. And that's what he's done the whole time. And he wants people to, to take the piss out of him and to call him a moron. And, and, and it worked last time. I, I think that it's going to lose, it's lost its effectiveness a bit because I, I think that he's just so deeply ingrained within people's lives now that it's not plausible to sort of say that you're not part of the Canberra bubble when you've been you know, heavily involved in people's lives for the past two years of pandemic and you, uh, you've lost a lot of skin. And so I don't think that's completely plausible, but clearly he's got the two strategies, which is the daggy dad shit, which sort of like um, messes with people's heads and gets the desired effect and draws these diff- differing emotions from both his opponents and his supporters. And, but then also the other stuff which is happening in Parliament at the moment, which is the wedges on social sort of issues and then also the warmongering uh, on China. That's the really dangerous stuff because, you know, we've seen it work so many times before and I don't think anyone's ever really come back from this sort of deficit in news poll 
to actually win within you know three months or whatever it is. But um, it's certainly a very like dangerous combination for labour. Like, it's something it's very sort of hard to to counter both those things. Yeah, it feels like they're swinging wildly at the moment. On the, they're on the ropes and they're trying to swing their way out of uh, a tight situation, hoping they'll land a knockout blow. And we've got a long way to go, you know, politically before an election. So we'll see how that plays out and whether Labor and uh, progressive politics can keep its cool. I'm really interested in whether you think the last two years of the pandemic and the uncertainty that that's created, uh, because obviously as as, uh, people who are involved in unions, we're really interested in whether people are prepared to fight for better paying conditions in their workplaces and and join their unions or or whether the uncertainty and the problems of the last two years make people more fearful of losing their jobs and less likely to advocate for themselves. Do you think it's changed people's mindsets around the importance of secure jobs uh, that we feel so passionately about that, you know, if people had secure jobs with entitlements, they wouldn't be exposed in the same way that they were when they lost their casual or labour hire work at the start of the pandemic and suddenly found themselves on welfare. Yeah, totally. I, I think, and we spoke about that last time. Like, I think it's been building up for a while, even pre-pandemic, especially with the labour hire sort of stuff. Even within mining communities, there's, there's certainly like a sense that those secure jobs and with the entitlements that you know might have been enjoyed by their fathers and uncles, and they just doesn't exist uh, at the moment, at least for a lot of people. Uh, and, and so that goes right through all the other industries as well. And we're in this really weird position where obviously the essay was about class, but a lot of that was sort of aesthetic sort of stuff. But it's been one of the things that's happened in this pandemic is that um, this dual thing where people with the most financial instability have remained really finan- like more financially unstable than what they were before, while the people with the least financial instability have actually ended up richer than what they were pre-pandemic. Uh, their jobs are more tailored, especially white collar jobs, are more tailored to staying at home. And they have a lot of people haven't really skipped a beat. And in fact, their property values and their share portfolios have actually ended up ahead of where they were. Whereas the people who started with uh, on shaky ground, they've got less savings. They've probably got uh, less secure uh, rights at work. And, and it is creating a powder cake. But as you said, it also creates that sense of uncertainty because you see when when unions like make even the the most reasonable declarations uh, about gaining some sort of more security for their their members they're painted as like uh, socialist and demonized as um, trying to shut the country down and that's what happened uh, with Frydenberg and Sally McManus recently and it was just bullshit it's not bullshit in the sense that like it's surprising but it's just so relentless that sort of like class war and as I said it's not just class war in an aesthetic sense as we come out of this pandemic it's redesigning the shape of our society for decades. Um, it was already heading in not a great direction because if you're born in one of the capital cities and you don't come from a middle income or high income family, your dreams of owning a home are non-existent. Because the other thing that we've seen is people, uh, the response to this is always, oh, you should just move, you know, move where it's affordable. But regional Australia is also like, it's not, you can't just move out to regional Australia and buy a house for 50 grand or whatever. Like, I come from Toowoomba and their property prices have been through the roof because so many people have been moving to these regional areas because work is allowed to do so. So I really do um, fear for the sort of entrenchment of that uh, inequality that we saw building up uh, really from the early 1980s onwards. And I I think that uh, rather than being like a correction for that, I actually think the pandemic um, is going to further entrench it. One of the really interesting observations from the large group of people who amassed in Canberra, who have amassed in Canberra over the last few weeks, sort of 
very loosely affiliated groups of people calling themselves the Convoy to Canberra, who are sort of anti-vax, anti-mandate slash freedom slash sovereign citizen, um, which is a crazy conspiracy theory that says that Australia isn't real. So there's really like hundreds and then thousands of people who amassed in Canberra for several weeks and caused a lot of trouble. But um, just an observation that I made looking at sort of videos that were coming out of the protest camp and also um, observations that were made by journalists who were down there sort of covering it more thoroughly was that the vast majority of people down there seemed to not be in work, like whether it was that they were unemployed or they had been small business owners and had lost their business or they were um, underemployed, uh, casual workers, gig workers. I don't want to fall into that the archetype or the stereotype here where all activists are like, you know, hippies, get a job, you like unemployed. You know, like I don't mean that. I just, for me, it seems to be very apparent that a lot of these people were affected by insecure work and unemployment. And I was really worried. I think it would be foolish to think that this sort of um, fringe group and sort of conspiracy fringe organising is going to go away. Like it attached itself to the pandemic because because of the various reasons that we discussed in the last podcast. I wondered if you had any thoughts on that group of people and disenfranchisement more broadly. Yeah, uh, it, it is, you know, and we saw it with the protests last year, like um, as easy as it was in some ways to demonise these people and sometimes like it was hard not to demonise them because of their behaviour. There was very real sort of socioeconomic pressures driving some of these people to do pretty bizarre things. As I said, there's a lot of people who have missed a lot of the psychological pressure of COVID. You know, it's still been there, but it hasn't been quite as strong because their job's haven't changed too much. They've worked from. I live with um, a couple of people who work in white, white collar industries, and they've, you know, their work hasn't skipped a beat. If anything, it's, it's gotten better. And so, um, there's a lot of people who aren't in that position uh, and who are all, already have this anti-authority disposition, and it's sort of easy to whip these people when they actually hit uh, economic turbulence to to, re- to really. Um, mobilise them and, and, and activate their distrust of politicians into these act, like actions that, that seem pretty insane. Uh, and, and it's not even just the uh, economically insecure. Like I mentioned him a lot in my essay because he's, <laughs> I called him the archetypal Howard Battler, my brother John in Bundaberg. I don't think he's lost a day of work. He works as a car dealer. So I don't think his wife maybe lost a bit of work at the start of the pandemic, but Bundaberg wasn't really affected. But uh, this Howard Battler, like Howard Battler, uh, has attached himself to a lot of the, these conspiracy theories. Not the really deep end sort of stuff, but like the, just this skepticism towards, it's more, as I said, he, he's been vaccinated, but he did so with reluctantly and with skepticism. And there's just like, uh, there's all these voters and they're not just on the far fringes. They're sort of like the, in the mainstream of the least, I think, um, the coalition sort of base who are just so distrustful of, government and that's been fed by the coalition who I think are sort of facing a D-Day with this well that they've poisoned over so long to say don't trust the experts, don't believe the experts you know, go with your gut, go with the fair go, all this sort of uh, rhetoric about um, yeah, like 
common sense not being so common anymore, yada yada yada. And then and then now a lot of their now a lot of their heartland sort of voters are as distrustful of their actions as what they were of, you know, Labor's actions between two thousand seven and two thousand thirteen. And so Albanese said last week and and this is in regards to the religious discrimination stuff, he said uh, Morrison we- tried to wedge me and he ended up wedging himself. But I think that's happening more broadly. Like he's he's really getting pulled from either end between and that's why you see him doing these things that seem so contradictory where he jumps from trying to appease this right fringe who might drift off to Palmer or One Nation, but then also trying to keep these inner city seats in Melbourne and Sydney, uh, which as we saw with the by election on the weekend, like they nearly lost uh, Willoughby, which is like um, incredible. So if something like that played out at the federal election, which the independents contesting those seats have a lot more resources than what they did on the weekend uh, and a lot more media attention, then um, he could be in real trouble on, on, on either end. And so I think that that's something that we've seen happen so many times to Labor over the past couple of decades. And it's still happening, certainly, but um, it's, it's really interesting to see uh, now the coalition have to try and triangulate between these opposing ideological forces. Yeah, look, I spent a lot of time in close proximity to uh, the protests in Canberra uh, a week or so back uh, working up there, and it was apparent to me that there are a lot of disaffected people who two years ago probably couldn't have imagined they'd be politically active in the way they were. And what I also saw was a lot of uh, young families involved with uh, that look like they come from the suburb I grew up in, who in which were traditionally sceptical of politics or just wanted politics to make sure that they could get on with their lives, had been politicised by their experience. And what it taught me was to not judge as much as I had been about, about these people, but to try to understand them, not to excuse the uh, uh, nasty elements within that protest movement, which is exploiting that uh, disaffection and that disillusionment and that lack of power for political ends, for very you know, considered political ends, but to try and understand why people would feel so disillusioned that this becomes their option and that traditional mainstream political process that we like to compete in and, and you know in the public square and discuss is not considered somewhere that they belong and that frightens me it's a real problem for all sort of the institutions that we care about whether it's unions whether it's a political party that you're aligned to whether it's a democratic process itself the people there were you know they, you looked at their agenda they just wanted parliament to stop i mean that was just, it was a ridiculous ask but you know, bottom line, they no longer trusted that process as being one that delivered anything for them. And they're a very small number of people. But the fact that that is now being uh, represented by people who look like everyday, ordinary Australians, yeah, there's something going on that we need to address. It's not good enough just to s- dismiss it out of hand as a bunch of, uh, of loonies because it isn't. It's the people on, on the street next or next door that you grew up with or live alongside still. And uh, we need to keep talking to them. And I think, um, as I said before, if everything seemed pretty unstable pre-pandemic, I think the pandemic's just going to put all that stuff on steroids. And so, um, yeah, I think that we've got a very unstable road ahead for a number of reasons. But that lack of trust in political institutions and the political process like, is going to be, you know, and even if Labor does win the election, it's like, how do you actually get under these conditions when there is such little trust? Uh, within the political process and how do you regain that trust without union membership without the sort of civic engagement that traditionally gave people some sense of investment in not just the political process but in this idea of community like everything there is is you know it's not beyond hope or or anything like that but it is going to be very hard to be a government whether you're labor or liberal that actually 
pursues policy, like forward-thinking policy because I, I just don't think that the appetite is there, both in the sense that people are just so risk-averse at the moment, but also they just don't trust politicians and they don't trust politics. Mm. I found myself thinking, like, God, there's so many people there. Politicians should go out and talk to the, these people. Like, there's so many people. I, I really do believe in protest. But then, like, obviously that wouldn't have been possible because there were, like, more than a handful of people who kept threatening to, like, murder politicians. I understand why it was not a good idea. But um, I can imagine that a feeling heard and listened to and then being able to hear from um, the political leadership who are so despised and distrusted by this group of people, like, could have gone such a long way for people who were genuinely aggrieved and genuinely travelled all that way to Parliament House hoping to participate in democracy and, like, engage with our democratic system. You know, they went to Parliament. It's not It's not like they went somewhere else. And, yeah, I'd feel sad <laughs> about a lot of different aspects of it all. And it seems like a lot more, like, we've seen this happening a lot more in Australian politics over the past decade or so in terms of, like, um, especially with the mining tax sort of stuff. And, but I feel like those campaigns are very top-down. They were very sort of like AstroTurf campaigns where it was funded from people with uh, financial interest in defeating particular policies, whereas this feels a lot more spontaneous and sort of bottom-up. Obviously, you've got Palmer and other figures who are whipping people up and, and investing a lot of money, but he's not really doing that for like, he's just doing that to create mayhem. He's not doing that to achieve a particular financial end, maybe indirectly through the power that he gains. But yeah, it just sort of feels like people are coming together with anger that that is a lot more organic than what we saw uh, maybe with stuff, as I said, with the monitor. Mm, I think you're right, but I also have to point out that there's been a little bit of research, particularly from Cam Wilson at Crikey, who does some really great work around how a lot of the organisers of the protests are linked to like a Bangladeshi bot farm, essentially, and how that there's, really? yeah, and so like, like obviously loads of the, you know, everyone there was, yeah. they're all real people, but um, that there's like a sort of element of organisation that is coming from nefarious actors who have engaged a agency based out of Bangladesh. But anyway, more on that in another episode perhaps. <laughs> What a world in which we live. Hey, Lek, it's been great having a chat with you. We might do it again as we get close to the election, but we really appreciate you taking some time out uh, to be back with us on the pod. Thanks a lot, mate. No worries. Thanks a lot, guys. It was great. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. Lek Blaine there, author of the uh, the essay, you know, the quarterly essay called Top Blokes, which is still available if you uh, go uh, searching for quarterly essay. Really great insight into the political culture uh, in which we currently live and uh, one that is definitely shaping, Sally, the election as we get closer and closer. It definitely is. And I am, I am in such a love-hate relationship with elections that I'm feeling really despairing and excited about it. <laughs> Yeah, that's the roller coaster on which we ride. Hey, thank you once again, Sal. Great to catch up with you. Uh, say hi to Jess Monday when you go out for a beer. Uh, have a great time. And we can follow you on your socials at Sally Rugg. 
That's right. You can follow you, Francis, at St. Frankly. Can we also remind people about your current campaign in relation to the Murdoch Royal Commission? Can you give us an update on where that sits at the moment? Yeah, can do. So we Australians for a Murdoch Royal Commission has recently gone to our membership to do like a a strategic consultation of what our members think we should be prioritising for the first part of the year and also how we should run the election strategy. So should a Murdoch Royal Commission be at the centre of the federal election? Should it not be? Should we target Labor only? Should we not target an in? All this sort of stuff. So we're doing a bit of strategic consultation there. If anyone wants to give me your thoughts on that topic, do head to the website afmrc.org.au. Thanks, mate. We'll catch you again next week on The Job. Have a great week. Bye.